Hello, this is Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. And we are Two Teachers Talking, a podcast about teaching English in Japan, teaching in Japan, teaching in universities in Japan, and generally just talking about education and especially what Tony and I do right, and even more about what we think we do wrong. This is episode 56. And 56. 56. It's getting up there, isn't it? It's my age. It's a magic number, I just realized. And today we're talking about student-centered teaching, which is one of those things that everybody agrees with and everyone believes in and everybody says that they do. But Tony, we're going to be actually looking at what we think are, or what you think, <laughs> are some little cans of worms, multiple cans of worms, I think, is how I would put it. I guess so. I guess so. And I guess maybe the first can is defining it. <laughs> when we talk, when we say student-centered learning, um, what is exactly meant by that? It's um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of different interpretations i think that people have and it helps to i think for us to kind of wrestle with that and figure out what it is that we're, we're talking about today right because i do think that we we need to wrestle with it um grapple with it because most people will define student-centered learning or students that will teaching as anything that is not teacher-based learning Anything that's the opposite. In other words, sometimes it could be defined in the negative. If the teacher doesn't get up and do a chalk and talk and let students work together, they call that student-based learning or student-based teaching. Um, where would you go with that, Tony? From what I understand, <clears throat> uh, it is a situation where the students themselves uh have uh, much if not total control over what they study um how they will study um and probably some aspect of assessment as well um where all that is all those decisions are kind of made by the students or shifted toward the students and away from the teacher um I've also heard it defined as something as vague as putting the students' interests first. Well, that's vague. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, exactly, you know, so Cloudy, these, these different definitions are all over the place, and it's um, hard to know sometimes when someone uses the term what it is that they're talking about. Yes. So I think maybe one good way I would approach it is that this all-or-nothing global kind of definition I think I'd like to toss out the window right now. I'm glad to hear that. Right, in the sense that, <laughs> you know, that it's the students are responsible for the syllabus, they make decisions. I don't think that's the definition we want to work with. I think let's bring it down to a micro level and look at it as, let's say, on a class-by-class -class basis. Okay. What's happening yeah, in the good, classroom. Because I think, yeah, I throw out that, um, you said, that, that global definition um, I think really important. I don't not, and I think that applies not only to something like this, like student-centered learning, or the flipped classroom, or you you name it. Um, but a lot of times, what happens? A lot of these, someone comes up with a label, and uh, now that they've got a label, they need to take a position, and uh, in a attempt to get the, some notoriety, they uh, create a dogma, and which in the end comes rather impractical 
and uh, needs to get stepped back. And yeah, and it's like, mm-hmm, get me started. <laughs> but yeah, I'm all for throwing away that, that, that big, overwhelming definition. Yeah, let's go get directly to something that we can handle and something practical. Right. And before we do that, I think what we were talking about before was this thing, the, the new idea, the big new idea right now, right, which is the flipped classroom. Which, as far as I understand it to be, means that the teachers uh, prepare some kind of video activity that the students do that then prepares them for the next class. And when they come to class, they're supposed to be on task doing things that is based on the homework so that the homework is no longer, or the work at home, by the way, which is, I think, how we need to change the term from now on. It really kind of makes you think differently about things, is to prepare students for the next class rather than used as a reinforcement tool or just busy work. And I think both of us would just kind of go, I don't think that's anything new. I was a lit major, right? <laughs> yeah. you know? isn't, isn't that how it's supposed to work? <laughs> exactly, right. This is what I did in college, right? Ain't you have been doing it? You prepared for the next class. <laughs> you, you read for the next class. You answered questions for the next class so you would be able to participate in the next class. And even in the sense, even if it was a teacher-led lecture, mm. you had to do that work so that you would be able to understand what was going to be covered in class. Right. So, right. And I don't know, Tony, if you said something, I think that was a little bit, um, what was it? Not, I don't know, a little bit what that people want to make a name for themselves and I think that's a whole other area (laughs) that I don't want to get into right now but I Mm. think that people really try hard I think people really are looking for answers but I think that education like any other area is um, victimized by our love of new and innovative and it can be packaged in many different ways so you know if we look back at uh education reform it's it's a it's a checkered past i think and yeah and it's yeah maybe the way i said it wasn't entirely accurate and didn't really mean to yeah right remember that's my the, job the, in the intent past. of the writer but <laughs> um it does it does speak a little bit to that whole idea of you know the the fashion of the moment and of the trends and teach like okay this is i mean whatever what was it like 10 15 years ago suddenly suddenly Oh, communicative activities were a big thing. Well, foreign languages, <laughs> this is kind of what you're doing anyway, but it's a new label and everybody gets on the bag bandwagon and it starts appearing in textbooks and uh, the term eventually kind of just loses any meaning that it might have had. Right. And there's so, and the, I think the other thing, while we're, while we're doing qualification and, and limitations and things, I think we also, before we get too far out on, on, on the limbs, um, r- kind of reiterate that we're talking about university age students and foreign language classes, which is a completely different thing than, for example, an elementary school social science situation, right? Hmm. So university foreign language, how can we uh, take the good stuff and uh, out of this principle or uh, philosophy and uh, make the classes better? Mm. So how do we do that, Charles? <laughs> Help me out. Oh no, I was just gonna let you drown by yourself. 
<laughs> it's hard. I think, okay, so we almost have to start from, you know, what are the basic premises? What are, and it's a very, and also what are the values that we use while operating as educators inside the classroom? I would start off by saying one of the things, I, I, trying to, I was trying to find who this quote is from. It's from a woman who was um, originally doing research. Um, I think she was a neurologist or doing research in um, you know, brain. And she went into teaching and she has this great quote where she says, remember, it is the person doing the work who is growing the dendrites. Mm -hmm. And I really like that quote. Mm -hmm. And that I think encapsulizes what is the goal of student-centered teaching, which is that students are active in the classroom, actively learning and learning by doing, by engaging with each other, by interacting. The learning is not defined as the teacher communicating knowledge to the students that the students then record. Mm. The other thing would be that I think most people would agree that a student-centered, I don't know if most people would agree, me going out on the limb here but of course i think everybody thinks the same way i do it's okay we got the mics we got the mics so what that's we say right goes. yes and, and anyone is you know has complete freedom to turn into your own podcast you know set and make up whatever or, you want to make up this right. is our podcast or just set it so that when my voice comes on it cuts out and you only have tony so well, now where was i <laughs> getting old dendrites dendrites and stuff oh in the classroom so it's not the teacher um, I think people, a lot of educators or many people, educators would agree kind of along that um, constructivist Vygotskyan kind of Yeah, I was going to talk about right, that. Right, yeah. that knowledge is constructed through interaction. Mm -hmm. It's a social activity that allows for it. And we are differentiating, of course, between information and knowledge. And I should also say that we have to distinguish between knowledge and understanding, which is a very big thing by um, Grant Wiggins in his book, Understanding by Design, which, by the way, is a very recommended read, will affect people's teaching quite a bit, using, you know, certain design principles for how do we design curriculum syllabi, how do we approach teaching, and it's just, you know, one of those books written by someone who's obviously a master teacher, it's really nice, highly recommended. Um, so there's a lot of interaction between students. Students are working. They're doing things. They're, and also, people would understand that they're just not sitting there passively. So those are some of the general uh, approach um, ideas behind it. It's based on the belief that students should be working, that a classroom where students are doing group work, pair work, on, you know, on task, doing tasks, is a more effective learning environment. I would say that what drives me to try to construct or create student-centered classrooms is a belief that students learn more when they're working with each other. The less I talk, the more I learn. And that's based on the fact that I don't think, Tony, that there's any such thing as really teaching. But I think that educators can create sequences of environments and opportunities that are conducive for learning. So the real value, I think, what we're talking about when we're looking at student-based learning, student-based teaching, is an emphasis on learning rather than an emphasis on teaching. Okay. And in that yeah, sense, think... it's a flipped classroom. I'd like that way, right? That I think it's John Hattie, who I, I really like, who said that 
the best teachers don't talk about teaching. They talk about learning. <laughs> it's an interesting quote. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I think I, you said at some point, I don't know if it was like what you what you thought or like it was, you're echoing something else, that there's really no such thing as teaching. And that's what I wanted to qualify. That's my idea, by the way. Yeah, I wanted to qualify that with, especially with like our, the, our classes, university foreign language, because I, I think I would disagree. And I have, and I have a concrete example. Uh, yesterday, in fact. <clears throat> you um, set this up just so you could say that, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you set it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Blame the victim, blame the victim. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, uh, you know, it, what, the, what the class, the class was a listening class, so the, the and whatever, okay. And, uh, but this was after class. And uh, uh, the student came up with a question. She said, I... You know, pronunciation is a little bit, a little bit obvious. Well, you, you use the word stuff, stuff, and I couldn't tell whether she was talking about staff or stuff. And um, I says, "Well, I don't, I don't ever talk about staff, so there must be she must be talking about stuff." And I don't remember using the word, but she she says, "I want you. You always use the word. I I want to learn how to use that word stuff." And then I proceeded to teach her. So that's teaching, right? Hmm. I understand the example, and I think it might work on the small scale. Uh-huh. But I don't think it's going to work um, in the sense of a classroom that the idea that you might be able to explain it. You might be able uh, uh, let's differentiate. Is there a difference between teaching and instructing? Uh, I, I think it gets, it gets a little slippery. I mean, slippery, whether it's teaching, slope. explaining, or um, okay. what was the other word that was just in my head that disappeared? Um, teaching, explaining, and... Instructing. Instructing, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, but... I don't know. Um, I think maybe it's not a difference in the uh, actual what you say or the a action itself. It's more of a... A construct that you put on it externally. Okay, maybe I don't know. Let me play devil's advocate. Go get to it. Get to it before you get to it. Hmm. <laughs> I know it's coming in this episode. All right. <clears throat> so when you say you're teaching somebody, right? So you teach it to them. You show them how to do the pronunciation. And what if they don't get it? Have you taught it? Have they learned it? You'd say they haven't learned it, right? Um, I guess. So, but I guess if they haven't learned it, then I haven't taught it. I've tried to teach it. That's kind of where I'm getting at. Yeah, I've tried to teach it, but if they don't get it, then I have not succeeded and I have not taught it and they have not learned it. Um, teaching requires the students to understand. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that I think we, as 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 it, I'm, I'm trying to move actually away from calling myself a teacher, you know, and I, I know some people feel that semantics and words really don't make a difference. But I find that there's a conscious effort when I'm trying to define my identity. And the words I use really do make a difference. Or And it's part of the process and the struggle with this idea to educate, to teach. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, you know, that's a really good point. And um, I think it, it, a lot of that is internal, but I think it's a, a really valid point, an important point. Um, the, the, nuance in the role that you in your in your own mind think of as teacher and getting away from that and calling yourself an educator or whether the big word in the 90s was the facilitators um i think 
in some ways, depending on what the person's definition of a teacher is, I, that can very well be a very noble way of thinking of yourself. However, if you, if in your in person's own mind, they make a distinction between that a teacher indicates this kind of approach and an educator indicates this other kind of approach, then it's a very useful, practical, and valuable uh, distinction that the person makes. So, Okay. So yeah. let me run with this again because oh. I want to try tying it back to students and teachers. And it's something I've been struggling with a lot uh, amongst other things as being a teacher. And, but, you know, as and any teacher knows, anyone who's really an educator or a teacher knows that this is a highly personal field, right? That involves you oh, yeah. really reflecting oh, yeah. on who yeah, you yeah. are as a human being. Sometimes I just wish I was like, a, you know, a data entry clerk, right? <laughs> and that there'd be no emotional, there'd be no days where I come home and feel like I need to just cry my heart out because of, <clears throat> you know, I did something wrong or I need to grow more, develop more. I'm but, making a list here of like future topics, you know, so. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm serious. But... Good the stuff. idea here is that no matter how clearly I explain something, <laughs> yeah, should we end the should we end the episode now? <laughs> that the key is not that teaching part. The key is how do people learn, and how do we deliver information in a way that is learnable for the multiple personalities and different kinds of human beings that are in a classroom. And again, as you said, we're talking about right now, even in university, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the emphasis has been, let me see if I can create a clear lecture. Let me see if I can explain this clearly. But that explanation is based on the fact that there's a transfer of information, or some people would say knowledge, but knowledge would really be integrated information. Okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is what I think learning is. And I'm taking from, again, Grant Wiggins and Understanding by Design, talking um, about the importance of transfer, which I was told by um, DJ Condon, who's the headmaster of Canadian Academy, has been on the show before, comes yeah, yeah. from Howard Gardner, the importance of transfer. But I'm going to say that learning occurs when a student is able to take um, what they've, or learning occurs when there is the ability to transfer that knowledge. You have understanding rather than knowledge, and a student can transfer it to new situations, to new genres, to new conditions, and is able to synthesize what they've learned and understand the connections of how this piece of information connects to that piece of information. The traditional way of teaching and for people to be able to do that has been that there's a kind of person who sits in front of the classroom, communicates the knowledge, and then the students in the lecture or listening then listen to it and within their own heads, they process that information and then are able to make the connections. And that's either done through the homework or through tests and having students prepare for the tests. As a lot of people point out, and um, right, that the people who tend to be teachers, this is, ah, this comes from 
Disrupting Class, a book I just read, which is looking at education reform, is that most of the people who become teachers are people who are pretty good at listening to other people, reading books or listening to teachers, and then being able to synthesize the information and figure out how to apply it in other situations. But that's only a subset of all the people in the classroom. But this is the main delivery method. So perhaps I could say that, you know, revising it in this discussion we're having is that teaching does occur and can occur, but it's to a certain subset of the students. And that the other students are going to need more experience working with the material. They're going to need to be guided through a sequence of processes. Um, they need to be challenged. Um, they have to engage in activities that will help them make those connections and synthesize that information and figure out how to understand it in different ways. And if we look at that, right, if we look at the fact that our classrooms are filled with a variety of individuals with different ways of, or preferred ways of learning, because I think that there's really no hardcore evidence about, what is it, um, different learning styles? Mm -hmm. There's, that seems to be really up and down. But there are yeah, ways... Yeah, it's controversial right Yeah, now. but we, I do know that I have a preferred learning style or I a preferred to... way of learning. For example, I would rather read than watch a video, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. regardless, that the idea behind the student-centered teaching is that students are hands-on, they're working, they're engaged in processes that are allowing them to do deal with this information or this input receive feedback in a way that has more um, variation and flexibility in, let's say, how they best work or function in a classroom environment. How does that sound? Or did I just, you know, put my, stick my foot and open my mouth no, to no, change no, no, feet no. again? I mean, that, make, that makes sense. Um, one, of the, one of the ideas that popped up as you were talking is something else that um, I read recently about um, learning and how it, it started off is uh, I think referencing an article a few years ago uh, where someone described um, uh, that a good way to either study, learn, or uh, materials to give your student is to give them a that they would retain more if they if it were in written in a difficult to read font. Hmm. And typeface. I, I know this. Yeah, right. I right. remember these studies. Right. And then from that, you know, kind of a theory that, yeah, with uh, this increased difficulty, it actually increases the efficiency of the learning. And what, what I made the connection when you were talking about preferred learning styles, which I know that I have, and you, you said that, that you did as well. And things say, well, okay, we, we prefer it because we feel that it's easier it, that may not be the most efficient way. So actually, um, and you know, I'm not going to do the research, but research may find that um, learning can best take place when the students are forced to do things that do not fit their preferred learning style. And that, in fact, giving them the reins might be counterproductive. That's interesting. I'm not, it's just as an idea, but you know, who the hell knows? I don't know. Well, that's interesting because first off, you have the really important essay. I think it was Craig and Tolving, wasn't it? Um, depth of processing, which was oh god, must be in the nineteen seventies, nineteen seventy five, and they looked at the fact that the more processing that's involved, the more mental activity that a learner uses or subjects use, there's better retention, there's better learning that occurs. I just read. Um, 
I just read it. I mean, that exact the same thing is that it's actually there are studies that have been done that show. And I wish I had the citation on this. That the more difficult the learning, the better the learning. Right. Right. right if it's right, easy, exactly. it's the same idea. Right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. If it's easy. So your idea that. That's a really great research project, isn't it? <laughs> that is a really, really, really good research project would be to identify students. That's great. That's so counterintuitive, right? But uh -huh. it's brilliant. I love that idea. Put a grant request in for that, a grant proposal. Um, I think that's a really interesting idea. So what we could do is by going, um, giving the counter argument that in a teacher-centered classroom, Right. It's very likely, though, that people are in an environment, a, a classroom environment that is not conducive for their learning. It goes against their preferred learning styles, but we're not getting much learning done. Right. There seems there's there's enough research that seems to indicate, yeah. you know, that. So I think we can assume. Yeah. yeah, we can assume that. So I think we, we have these general ideas about student-centered teaching. And I think we would agree, all right, that in student-centered teaching, the students are active. The students are engaging with each other. They're either in pair or group work, or they could even be working individually to working on something that engages them and is designed to help achieve understanding. And I'm using understanding in my term, which means that the student will be able to transfer what they've learned and be able to synthesize it and show its connections and be able to use it. And that the teacher takes kind of a, a couple of steps back and allows students to be doing the work other than just taking notes or being sitting passively in the chair. Would you accept that? Yeah. And I would say that that's basically, and I know this, that what you basically do in a classroom, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, so and you're again, playing devil's is, advocate on what you're doing. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah, and I'm saying that, that is when we early on when I said we need to define what we're talking about. So that is your, our, my, you know, our. I think I think I agree with you. Uh, our definition of what it means, but there's for a lot of people that they define it differently. Have you ever heard any other definitions? I don't talk to people. <laughs> so you're just kind of shooting from the hip here and extrapolating yes. and going off okay well no well no but i have right i mean because okay. there are like a lot of different ways of looking at uh different ways of defining that and um specifically with this with this term um students and learning there's all kinds of um interpretations and in how mm -hmm. much control the students have and uh like f for example uh one interpretation where the teacher never s tells the student anything directly and makes the student figure out every you know leads them i guess with with other questions and so forth which which has value but again that that word never um one size never fits all is the rule you got it right that's so, the problem you need to use this approach this approach works or that approach yeah, and that works. was my 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 comment about dogma early on it's yeah. like you know that's why it's there's, dogma. There's, there's useful stuff here <laughs> let's take the useful stuff but let's not make it a religion right that's the whole exactly that's why it's dogma yeah we at this point if you know here's what i, I find really interesting is that people will say okay students have there's individual learning styles 
there's multiple intelligences. So if there's multiple intelligences and we know that these things are evolving and our understanding of this is evolving, why would you think that there's one approach? Absolutely. Instead of saying, you know, there's got to be multiple approaches. In other words, this would this would be truly an incredible challenge that I am incapable of undertaking. But how would you orchestrate a class that actually would allow for every student to be getting an opportunity to learn in their preferred learning style? And it's just it's, the logistics of that are frightening. Mm -hmm. So I think we're there. Now, here's what's really interesting to me, though, is that I think, Tony, you could tell me if I'm wrong. Or actually, I prefer you would not tell me if I were wrong. But almost every teacher I know claims to be, you know, I, I, I do student-based teaching. I don't talk that much in class. Most of my class's students are on task. Would you agree? Or do you know people who actually say, I'm a chalk-and-talk teacher? Uh, the people that I know don't talk that much about their teaching. Hmm. Um. But I think I would agree with you that the ones that do, uh, from what they say, the one would assume that well, that's that's what they do in class, and they they like they give that impression that the students are doing the work mm. and they're they're on task and they don't yeah it, it's it's not a quote unquote lecture type class mm. and you know and I, and I, I I believe them mm. uh, foreign language right but. You're going to say? Yeah, but... <laughs> I was You're hoping you were going to carry the, the second part of that phrase over and continue. I don't know even with myself. I began to doubt myself because, you know, I say, okay, my, I, I, most of my time, most of the time in the class, the students are working together. So I've decided to check this and I'm doing a truly frightening thing. I'm actually, video, I'm taking a video camera to almost all my classes no. and I'm videotaping myself. Oh, well, that's courageous. Yes. No, 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 no. Videotaping myself is not courageous. Watching oh, yes, the video. At it. Watching the <laughs> well, video watching will it. be <laughs> It's amazing. I say to people, I say, you know, I'm, I'm videotaping my class. And everybody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But nobody says, have you watched it? <laughs> so maybe I'll just stop at this point and take the credit and the claim and I'm safe. Um, but there are, effect, you know, the fact that knowing there's a camera on me is changing. A little oh, bit of yeah, reality, sure, which has sure. its value too, which is it's acting as a reminder to, you know, wait a second. Interesting tool. I have to explore this idea a little bit about, and, you know, it's what do we do to ensure that we keep students on task? But anyway, so I'm doing that because I want to check on myself because I always tell my students, the less I t talk, the more you learn, especially in a language class. Um, and that's especially true for Japan where they've already had five, six years of instruction by the time I get to them. And the likelihood that I'm teaching them things that they already know. Um, and again, we've talked about the situation in Japan. And uh, the analogy I'll use is basically it's like people who have learned to play baseball for five or six years by reading books, mm -hmm. but they've mm -hmm. never played a baseball game. Mm -hmm. Or they've done the drills, but they've never played a game. Played a game, right. And exactly. Japanese students are like that in English. They have the... They've learned the stuff. If I check their vocabulary, you know, at certain levels of universities, they do have certain vocabulary knowledge. You know, they have grammatical, you know, awareness, et cetera, pragmatic, blah, blah. Um, anyway, and I want them to start using it because they haven't had the chance to use it productively. And here, here we go again. One of the major arguments for a student 
self-centered classroom is the importance of production. And without production, naturally learning is going to be limited. And this is, I, I think we've you've talked about this many times, right? The person with the unbelievably high TOEFL or TOEIC score who you say, how was your summer? And they can't respond. But they could read a journal article or a paper or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. You've seen those kinds. Uh, you've you've worked with. I think you mentioned that you work with somebody like <laughs> yes, that. I, do, I yeah. think. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I've worked with teachers like that. Okay, so right, and you should, sometimes <clears throat> they're often they're like Shakespeare experts. You know, people you do really working with heavy duty language. Yes, exactly. That was the word I was going to say. Heavy duty stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but incapable of uh, carrying on a, a extended conversation. Yeah. So well, I'm a native speaker, and I can't even carry on a native conversation. But that's a personality <laughs> quirk or disorder, whichever word you prefer. So. I think it's it's a focus on production is another way to look at student based teaching. Yeah, and I, and I would agree with you, but I think a lot of, some others would disagree. They're saying that if, for example, that production is a result of a teacher a dictated exercise or structure and things to do, then that's you're telling the student what to do. It's from the teacher, so that's not student centered. You know, learning. that's a different. Okay, so let's go back to that. I think that's you're, I would call that um, um, a student centered classroom. I've never actually thought of it as being a classroom run by the students, where the students mm. construct the classroom. I think that um, there are examples of that, where, you know, student-directed learning, self-directed learning. Mm -hmm. And that's more of a self-directed learning environment. And um, that's not what I'm thinking about when I talk about student-centered teaching. So would you accept that? Yeah. Yes, because, I would, yes, I would. And I said that's why early on, I think it was really important for us to talk about exactly what we meant by it, right. because... There's lots of different interpretations. Yes, student-led learning, I think, <clears throat> or, or independent learning, that works for a really special group of students. You know, and I think when you it, when there you have the right kind of students who can really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not just grow, but ex, you know, um, what's the word, Tony? Um, I don't know. Um, thrive. There it goes. Oh, thrive in that environment. It's great. But most students won't be able to thrive in that environment with that amount of freedom. That's a, a small group, I think, small percentage of students. And there are people who say, no, I'm wrong. The students are, you know, guided in the proper way. They're going to be able to do that. And I'm not going to get into that argument right now. But again, I just want to argue with that one size fits all approach. And I think... Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you too. And, and I think, again, I'm, I'm going to mention that Again, we're talking about foreign language, and you put a group of students together, how much foreign language can they learn on their own? Um, In the limitation. Gonna need, <laughs> they're going to need a, some kind of steering, some kind of direction. I mean, uh, it, initially, you got to give them some material, and you, you create some kind of task or goal, and then, yeah, then let, let them have at it. Mm. Um, but without that initial input, and without a you know, some guidance in terms of what to do with it to facilitate that production, um, I, th I think they're just going to flounder. Yeah, and I want to go back to, you know, talking about teachers who are, you know, say that they're student-based, but I want to first say that I think you're right, that word guidance or mm. what's used on the web is curation mm -hmm. is really valuable. I like curated sites, you know, where there's somebody like Arts and Letters Daily, where somebody's picking out what they think is really, really good. By the way, Brain Pickings is another great website. You know, these sites where the people 
actually go through different things and say, ah, this is really good or this is really valuable. There's too much out there for me to read or learn about. And someone who knows who can guide me into the really meaningful articles or works, it's incredibly valuable. Think about music. If you didn't know anything about music, it would be almost an impossible task. But if somebody, if there are some curated lists, right? Okay, ah, best, you know, country music for um, people coming from rock and roll, for example. Mm-hmm. That's really, really helpful. Otherwise, I have, I wouldn't know where to start. You don't know where to begin. Exactly. You don't know where to begin. And once you begin, you don't know what's the best second step or the next step. And I think that's what we're talking about. You really need good to, point. Yes. You know, I, I, could do it on my own and I could just take my next step could be not in the best direction or it could be in one direction and I'm going to go about roundabout and in a limited time situation when we're talking about within and let's let's define this too as we are talking about institutionalized learning and in that sense you know the teacher can save the student time with guidance I think I think you're hitting on something really uh, important and elemental, and I think you can almost uh, maybe work a definition of um, of mm, of teaching a teacher. Um, what you just said is like somehow providing direction for the student to take the next step on their own. Well, that goes back to my definition earlier, remember, where I said where you create a sequence or a series of experiences or environments. Right. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think what my main job right now is to do is to say, okay, I'm going to put move you off into this direction with these kind of activities where you're working with each other. And that'll create increased opportunities for you to decide where you want to go. But I'm still going to kind of herd you back and move you to the next direction. That right. based on my experience and you know what I've learned about learning and teaching and understanding and language is your best next move. Right. So Nice. Okay. That's something. I like it. Best next move. Maybe that's it. What's the best I like next it. I like move? It. I'm even going to... Because it's all... Yeah, it's what learning is, right? What they call here plus alpha. It's exactly that. It's like you get, you come to... You walk into the classroom with a certain amount of knowledge and experience and ability, and it's up to the teacher to figure out what that is, um, create, as you said, environment, tasks, uh, activities, whatever, to bring that student to the next step. Let them... if Of course if at all possible, to let them do it on their own so that it sticks. Well, it has to be on their own. Otherwise, it yeah. won't stick. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, it can, but okay. as we, just, we One discussed, size discussed fits before, all, right? it's like oh, the there best I am. way I'm to guilty, learn it is see? to, to I'm guilty do it themselves. Of that. There I am, right? Ah, I'm applying something dogmatically right there. Mm. You're right. For some students, it is going to work. Because, you know, you go back to that constructivist theory, and, and a lot of people think well, it's a, that it's, it's not really a teaching philosophy. It is a knowledge... Uh, accumulating knowledge creation theory in that even if the student is sitting there watching a video or sitting there listening to a lecture, um, it's the all the learning is taking place internally. It's not happening outside. The, the student is still creating that that knowledge themselves. Hmm. Well, there is knowledge that is create right. People will argue and you know say no, it's it's social because there's input, etc. No, but there's times where I learn by myself, and there's times when I learn within 
a group situation. I mean, that's like, mm -hmm. you know, this discussion we're having right now. And by the way, for all, all if you haven't figured this out by now, these are not scripted podcasts. Right? <laughs> that's why we go off these these tangents. But for example, we're in this process right now of, ah, okay, I'm learning more about student-based teaching. I'm listening to what you do. I'm modifying my ideas. I'm responding to what you're saying, your criticisms, suggestions, your ideas. So that's that example of that constructivist learning. But at the same time, there's other parts that have been done alone. Like when I'm writing, if I sit down and I write, not with the specific goal of, you know, writing a paper or writing something, but just, you know, as a thinking tool. So there you go. Right. Yes. So I think that's a good example of what you're talking about, right? Is yeah. that individual learning. So it's, it's an incredible process, but again, we have to flip it over back and focus on learning rather than teaching. Yes. What needs to be learned and how do, as educators, how do we help the students learn what is needed? And at the same time, they'll still give them the freedom to riff with it because of the value, because that's also that, let's say, let's admit it, that's the best part of the classroom is when your students start riffing with the stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, right? Isn't right, that right. joyous? Yeah. You know, when the student takes something in a way that you never, <laughs> you didn't even know it was possible for something to be done that way, to be, you know, that information or knowledge or something could be used that way. Um, you know, that's like when you, let in, if you have a reasonably high-leveled class or a reasonably, you know, students have a good command of the language, so you that they get into these discussions and you just kind of kick back and you, you know, sit back in the corner of the classroom and you, you're listening, but you pretend you're not listening. Mm -hmm. And I get amazed by that. Okay. So I think we're, we, we, we both agree that the emphasis is on learning. Cre no, but but, but we, before we just get off that, I want, I want to take it back to what I was saying at the beginning, the way you just, you know, you summed it up and talked about um, the students learning you know figuring out what the students need and giving them what they need so that they can do it themselves and then my point would be well, isn't that what good teachers have always done <laughs> well we were talking about yeah that right is yeah. that yeah. isn't that's what we've always done we don't need a new label and a new religion right yes and by the way to the audience again even though it's not scripted we do discuss a little bit talk about these things before that's what we were talking about before the show which is we were saying that isn't this what we've always done why is this this new thing right Hmm. what's, you know, letting students talk, facilitating discussions, using the Socratic method, right, of throwing, asking questions back, letting students explore. By the way, for those people who are interested too, there's um this really, it's called spider web discussions, which is kind of a systematized um, way or recommended way of having classroom discussions. Um, you might want to look into that. It's kind of interesting. But that, again, kind of does what we do, I think, especially if we're teaching like a seminar class, for example. Um, we do that. So now let's go all the way back. Is it okay if I go back now to go. what we're talking about teachers? Is that go, go. a lot of people say that they, they do student-centered teaching, but I don't know if they do, right? And that's why I mentioned the videotaping. I did an interesting yeah. thing. I, I asked students, I said, hey, you know, how many classes have you taken? And I'm talking to third year, fourth year students, and they say anywhere from 75 to 100 classes. Because remember, Japanese students take what, about 30 classes a semester or a year, right? A year. Anywhere, yeah. They, yeah on average, they have like five days a week, three classes that meet once a week. So like 15, yeah, 15 a semester. Yeah, so I think about 30. So we could say they're going to have about 120 by the time they graduate or 100 and, or 90 or something. And then I said, just roughly, how many of your teachers 
teach a student-centered classroom. And they understand that to mean that the students are talking with each other, working with each other. It's a non-lecture situation. And they said, oh, they would guess maybe 5 to 10% of the time out of all their teachers. And I said, okay, um, many of you are education majors. Um, how many of your education classes, you know, that are pedagogy, et cetera, et cetera, are taught in a student-centered manner? And they said, almost none. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you understand? You know, this is like, wait, I said, but wait, you, you, you do, you, you know about student-centered teaching and they go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a really important concept in all of our classes. <laughs> and I said, okay, so you're taught this by people who teach you that this is the way for you to teach. And they go, they yeah. Teach that and they said, but they don't teach that way. Think about it. Just if you go to a conference, yeah. right? If you go to a conference, what happens? Chalk and talk, PowerPoint, mm. chalk and talk, right? Even though everybody, you know, agrees that that's not the best way for learning to occur. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very interesting. So, I really am beginning to wonder how much student-centered teaching occurs. Now, another thing is um, just got done um, September and into the first week of October observing my um, junior seminar students. I have four, they signed up for my seminar, observing their student teaching. And they did something that every, this happens every year, which is that, you know, a beginning teacher does not do a student-centered class. They're too afraid. Either too afraid, <laughs> or it's too difficult, or they don't know. And what I found interesting is that their mentor teachers are not guiding them maybe not assisting them enough when they're constructing their lesson sure. plans, right? So Absolutely. Right. And I know for a fact that the most difficult thing I don't know this for a fact, and I don't know if it's the most <laughs> difficult thing. I should stop let talking. It go, let it go. I should I stop talking. <laughs> Definitely should stop talking this way, but let me try to be more precise with my language. I have learned that it's really difficult to be quiet in the classroom. It's really difficult to design a lesson where students are engaged with each other for the maximum amount of time and actually oh, sure. doing meaningful activities that could be assessed afterwards and indicate that some learning has taken place. It's just easier to get up and talk. Yeah. And teachers. I mean, teachers just love to talk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is... The most thing is the teachers just won't shut up, myself included. <laughs> We're choosing how long we can shut up for, right? <laughs> <laughs> that silence there. Yeah, and the other thing is that most teachers have huge egos. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to tell you the story. I went... I, went to a conference in June in Los Angeles, and it was one of the best conferences I went to. And one of the reasons was there were a lot of non-academics at this conference. So that was a reason it was really good. But I was talking with some person after their talk, and I said something, and I asked them, I forget what, how the conversation went that led to this response, but the person turned to me and said, I have no ego. And I kind of, yeah, exactly. I just started laughing. And I went, oh, well, yeah, right, right. Which is so egotistical uh, yeah, yeah. by I said, itself. Right? I said, yeah, exactly. I said, oh, yeah, me too. I don't have an ego either. And the person said, 
No, seriously, I don't have an ego. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Riff on that one, right? I mean, I'm sure that if you walked up to the, the Dalai Lama, right? And you said, your holiness, do you have an ego? He'd go, of course. That's the project, is dealing with the ego. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. We love to talk, and I love to talk. I talk too much. And I have to really hold back and say, wait, you know, the rule is that this is about them. It's not about me. You know, and always do that. And I find that after a few years, I was um, actually I started out teaching this way because I started working um, in a peer counseling center and our classes were working with at risk students and the classes you had to just, you know, have lots of discussions because these students were active, they needed to talk. And I just understood that that was a really good way to teach. So I've been doing this for a long time, but it's still I talk too much. Yeah, absolutely. I find myself that, that always is, that talking is my, too much. My, my biggest self-criticism is that, yeah, I just, I also have a hard time shutting up. Mm. That's a hard thing to admit. Yeah. So, so that, I mean, that by itself is like a really useful thing. So kind of getting maybe concrete is, you know, kind of wrapping up. Maybe, can you think no, of you mean, like, in other words, um, should we stop talking so we, much? We talk That's talking why we so. do this podcast, right? Yeah, right. So we can talk for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, maybe uh, an example from your experience, like you're teaching either now or in the past, where you successfully or unsuccessfully applied some of these um, student-centered uh, ideas that have, you know, yeah, either worked or not worked. Okay, yeah. Well, let me give you one that kind of works. Okay. Just because I'm doing it right yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. I have a, a, a seminar in American studies, small class. It's about five, it's always five or six students. I'm really lucky, by the way, that I teach at a university that allows us to have small classes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you're waiting to get, pardon <laughs> me? My story is going to be different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's American studies. So I'm trying to figure out how to introduce the idea of America. And, you know, I need to go through, and there's a lot of things I have to cover in this class. You know, the fact of, um, you know, What's it like to be, you know, to have been at that period of time that, you know, America was like a design constructed country, you know, the idea of building a constitution, the problem of, you know, of indigenous people and taking their land, et cetera, et cetera. And usually I've gone through and explained a little bit about the constitution and then gone into like a basic lecture of, you know, the first 10 amendments with my love of the ninth amendment, et cetera, et cetera. And then I thought to myself, well, how could I do it differently? So this year, I started off the class, you know, welcoming them and asking students what they knew. And then I said, okay, here's your project. You are a, in a group of 500 people who are on a one-way trip to Mars, never coming back. You're going to be the first 500 people to colonize Mars. What's your constitution? How do you make decisions? How do you guys govern yourselves? How do you organize your society? And they had class time, and then they were supposed to work together afterwards and come back basically with a constitution. And that's what they did. And then we went through, the, we talked a little bit about their constitution, and then we said, okay, but 
you you made your constitution, but did you think about what are the basic values that you believe in, or what's happening in the world right now that or has happened that you want to change? And they said, okay, fine. So we had the discussion then, and then I tweaked it. And I said, okay, now you've come up with your constitution and you've come up with like, you know, people have the rights for this, the rights for that, you know, and we talked a little bit of natural law versus legal law, et cetera. I said, okay, you get to Mars, you have your constitution, you have decided on all of this, and then you get to Mars and then you find out that there are life forms on Mars. How do you interact with them? Do you, how do you deal with them? You can't go home. You are stuck there. They maybe don't want you there. And then I say that we tweak it even more and say, okay, now, what if they said, you have to leave, you're not welcome. So that's kind of an example, Tony, of, I think, how I'm trying to teach the idea of a constitution and what you know it meant to try to come up with a country and then introduce the idea of the problem of indigenous people rather than like showing them movies or lecturing them or giving them things to read yeah and that's really nice like with a good content-based class and critical thinking type thing mm. but and these are yeah, pretty like, good more like, by the way you know, yeah. yeah 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 you have advanced students yeah these are these are yeah these are pretty you know this is all in english by the way <laughs> so it's a different thing. It's, it's you're not at that point you're really not teaching english you're teaching american culture and etc okay. and of, of course so obviously so much more but that's how you know i think which is the beauty of it right so that's one way so that's in an advanced class and i think that's an easy example um and, um, you know, I can give other examples, but let me throw it to you. Do you have any examples okay. where you do something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just say. I'll but just, is it also an advanced get, class? Before I get to my example, I'm going to talk about one just head on yours, because when um, it was a discussion class for fairly advanced students, and uh, the topic was rules or laws or things, and you, you had, among the discussion question that they had to deal with is like something like that. It's like, uh, if you had to, you know, change laws, or if you were going to create your own country, your city, whatever laws you would put, and I remember this because it was a long time ago. This is maybe fifteen years, and uh, one of the guys said, um, "Yeah, and we we decided that we would make religion illegal. Hmm. We would not allow any religions." And whoa. <laughs> and I said, "Well, well, what's 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 the deal with that, guys?" And he goes, "Well, because." Religions uh, just cause war. Hmm. And I go, oh, well, I, I can't argue. <laughs> I can't argue with that. Okay, good. <laughs> good on you. Obvious. I mean, obviously some thought to it, and it's like, this is great. But anyway, that's not my story. Though it's somewhat related. It was maybe a very similar type class. And um, for me, um, before we had been, I had been reading about student-centered learning, I had this a uh, little uh, flag that I would wave around about student autonomy. Mm. And um, for a long time, depending on which school I'm teaching at, I try to give my students enough leeway and control. I let them choose to the extent that I can what we're going to do. I let them choose to the extent that I can um, what they how they will be assessed. You know, do they want it on speaking in class, they want to in class participation, do they, do they want to do projects, do they want to do a paper, depending on what the specific class is and what my own limitations are, given the school policy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> but uh, for ex the example that I'm going to use, it, where I try to use as many, a lot of this um, approach 
as possible. It's uh, these are first year students at a, a very good university. Uh, they I teach. It's a very good university, and I teach a lot of the ad, advanced section. So these kids are extremely bright. They're um, fluent for the most part, even though they're first year students. And the classes are uh, between forty and forty five each. Okay, and that wasn't a mistake. They are each <laughs> class is between forty and forty five students each, and uh, they're all foreign language majors. Some uh, maybe a quarter of them are English majors. Um, the other three fourths are majoring in other foreign languages, and I have some foreign Japanese foreign students from other countries who are majoring in Japanese. I have students from India. Uh, Norway. I've had students from Russia and from Poland, um, also in these classes, and they're fluent in English, as as, as you extrapolate. Um, but you know, very different holes than, than my Japanese students. Um, and so they uh, are given the choice um, that we do have a textbook in each uh, unit is a different discussion topic. Um, they choose which units they're going to do. Uh, for the second, I have certain restrictions in the first semester, but in the second semester, they decide: Are they going to do um, a, a written product? Are they going to do a paper or not? Are they going to do presentations or not? Um, how what percentage of their grade is going to depend on either of those things, or participation in class, or um, oral discussion examinations that I that I do with them, and they also have to do. Te uh, the teacher says, the teacher says that uh, they have to do uh, weekly um, research, uh, uh, reading, and um, some written synopsis of the research they've done in preparation for class. But they decide how much of their grade is going to be based on those activities. So they have a choice of like the topics they study, um, the activities that they're going to do. Uh, and uh, a good deal of how they will be assessed. Mm. The actual structure of the class, I pretty much, I decide that. Um, I, I give a spiel at the beginning, and it might be have to do with the specific topic. Um, it may be, depending on, and, on the topic and the language, it may be a little more focused on the linguistic aspect of it. Uh, maybe introduce, like, introduce different terms, slang expressions, uh, collocations, um, even etymology. It, it depends on, on, on the various topics. I talk about you know, maybe about 20 minutes, probably, and, and honestly, probably more like a half an hour because <laughs> we don't shut up. Uh, they, they are divided into groups of four or five. Um, they have from me, and you talked about the curated um, websites. I have a website for the students too. Every time I know that I read something that has anything to do with one of the topics in the textbooks, I grab a PDF and put it on the page for them with attribution, mm. protecting myself from copyright. Um, so that makes the research for them a little bit easier. Mm. But I break them into groups, four or five. The group discusses the topic and a set of discussion questions that they've been given. And I encourage them to, but these are just, a, you know, if you get stuck, it's like you want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, that's fine. And then the last uh, 20 minutes or so, I have each group, which is like eight or nine, still nine at this point. Haven't, attrition hasn't uh, narrowed the class down too much yet. Uh, give a you know, very brief report about something interesting that they talked about. Um, this last week, the topics that came, the, the big topic was um, work and ethics. 
And so the topics that came up were prostitution, soldiers, mercenaries, surrogate mothers, drug dealing, drug use, uh, organ selling, and like that. So I like those classes. Mm. Yeah. So it was uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, as you said before, earlier, um, you know, being able to eavesdrop on some of the conversations and listen to their ideas and their formulation of ideas and language. So, you know, I, I float around, I listen to what they're saying. And you know, if there's a pattern of, of uh, errors in the language, I'll, I'll pick up on that. And I'll talk about content of what they're saying. I'll talk about other new expressions that might be useful for them in mm. that kind of discussion. So that's what I do. Yeah, so we could call it a teacher responsive classroom, mm. right? Responding to the students. That's nice. That sounds really, really good. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, it's it would be really nice if the classes were half that size. But what you gonna do? You know, it's interesting because I'm sure that one of the reasons group work came about was because of class size. <sighs> if you were teaching a class of only ten. You know, you wouldn't. You most wouldn't need to do that, or wouldn't be forced to do that. Yeah. But you, I'd still have you know the interest in backing off, right? And even in my small classes, um, the American, you know, studies seminar. You know, I really, I, I, even if it's five students, I break them into groups of three or two, or I let them work together as five and don't um, try to interfere too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. maybe that's it. A student centered, a student centered class is where the teacher just shuts up <laughs> as much as possible, as much <laughs> yeah, as give, possible. Gives, gives them a long leash. Yeah, that's it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Give students the freedom to explore. The leash is still there, right? Expl the leash has got. Well, I don't know if I like that image. The leash is still got to be there. Like you, know, you, you make it as long as you, as you can. Should we use like electrified fences or something? What's that? <laughs> electrified fences might be a better, <laughs> rather than a leash. Okay, so I think. You know, it's been an interesting discussion for me, Tony, to hear what you're doing and also to yeah, this is good. have that student, you know, that this thing that I, I is part of my teacher identity, which means it's part of my personal identity to really have to define it, explore it and try to really clarify. It's been really useful. So I think we covered some interesting points. And um, yeah, I think. It's an interesting. Yeah, and I've been taking notes, and I, I've got some ideas for some future topics. Yeah, I would like great. to do so that. Right, and yeah. uh, I think that whole idea, um, you know, to look at, you know, one size fits all approaches, right, is another way to go. I think we have to address that in the future. Yep. As well as you know what it means to be a teacher in terms of your being a human being, you know, in your own personal development. <laughs> okay, so it's a good time. <laughs> Give me the chills. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Okay, so I'm Charles Wiz. Mm, Tony Silva. We're two teachers talking at two teachers at gmail.com for uh, two teachers talking at gmail.com. Two teachers talking at gmail.com for email. Yeah. And, and two teachers talking.com. Right. And we are on iTunes, obviously, if you're listening to this. And I think we have a wrap, Tony. You got it. All right. You be well. So we're going to shut up now. All right. <laughs> Silence is golden. <laughs>